about this like anonymous newsletter in the UK. No, what? I it's mean, co- okay. So I assume there's many anonymous newsletters. I would assume, but this is got? the one that's pertinent to us. Okay. Specifically. Tell me about it. Tell me um about it. so they're called Proof. Oh. Yeah. And they like I like use... that name. Proof. Well, it's, I mean it's Proof. That's better than our name. You know what I'm though? Sorry it's to say. it's one of those things that gets checked over for errors and like we're the final product. <laughs> That's true. Like when when we were coming up with our name though, I feel like we were like looking for some like cool publishing name. You yeah. know, like we wanted like a term. Proof is better. It is. I I'm sorry. Yeah. But, but anyway, t- I don't even know what it is but though. So mo- tell me this what it is. this podcast is just all about our opinion, so that wouldn't work. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, it's that's... a it's an anonymous publishing newsletter and it just uh-huh. launched and there's, um, it's run by two people and they're, they're being, so like they got like a write up in like the bookseller.com and it was about like, will this change the UK publishing industry? Uh-huh. And apparently it's supposed to like be like speaking truth and whatever. Right, right. Um, and I'm really mad about it because I am, you know, as you know, at my core, a very jealous person. Uh-huh. Um, and they are described as having their newsletter be about a, quote, blend of parties, trends, gossip, and absurdities. And I'm really upset because we have said before that we don't get invited to publish. Well, that parties. sounds like that sounds a lot like us, except we, yeah, we don't go to we any don't go parties because no one lets us come anywhere. <laughs> so I don't. Yeah, that is weird. Um so it sounds like they're kind of moving in on our beat, huh? Yeah, it, um, it, they are, but they're, you know, they must not be as good at radio or something. Well, they can, I wish them a lot yeah. of luck. Their cause... tagline is <laughs> publishing IRL, which means oh, in real life. Of course it does. Yeah. Way to be hip yeah. on, the, on the lingo. Yeah. Um, well, that's fun, I guess. I don't know. It seems like maybe there's room for, you know what? No, there's not. I want to be on the damn list. I know. Put us on a list. And proof can exist. Then we won't have to, like, go into, like... I'm happy to exist on a list with proof. Okay, sure. But I'm not getting lapped by all these ancillary products. You want the real thing, you gotta come over here with the super moms of publishing content. You know, the, uh... In the the interview that I'm reading about the proof people, Mm. um, they were asked what most needs shaking up in the publishing industry, Mm. and their answer was... Uh, amongst many other things, blurb vocab, dazzling is dead to us. That's fair. Which, like, clearly is a joke, <laughs> and it's also, like, a very astute observation, but, like, come on. Like, I'm still mad I at hate, it. I hate, I hate blurb vocab. I, these people sound, fr- these people sound great. Yes, they sound just like us, this which, the, which means that they're amazing, which means that, of course, I hate them. This is the worst way for me to tell you this, but I started a newsletter, it's called, <laughs> it's called Proof. <laughs> Um, this is our last episode, folks. Um, so, uh, anyway. So I got mad this weekend, which is a shame to say because the first thing you should know about me is that I've literally never been mad. No, never in once um, in your life. I've never been mad. I've certainly never been mad online. Um, but today, or I guess rather yesterday, yesterday I was. And now, so the context here, though, was that I was cleaning my old apartment, right? Because I've got to get that mm. whipped into shape so that I can get my deposit back. So I was like in this empty apartment, just like 
throwing out garbage and cleaning a bathtub that I don't even use anymore, you know? So I was like really already kind of mad. It's not your bathtub. So I've got it's like no a, longer fun. I've got like a thing of Clorox in one hand and my cell phone in the other because like, God forbid, I try to like actually perform a task without getting a tweet off in between. So, but then I looked, I looked and lo and behold, someone had done a take. And oh, no. that, and it got me, it got me pretty revved up. Um, it was about the... Uh, the Parkland kids, you know, they, we had this big march, um, the March for Life, uh, March for Our Lives, whatever it's called. Um, march for Our Lives, march within our the li- four little, like, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that happened this weekend. Uh, more power to the kids, of course, but um, someone, someone did it again. Someone did the thing where they say, and you know what else these kids are doing? They're reading Harry Potter. Ooh. They have all read Harry Potter. They're calling it their playbook. Um, they're doing all these things, and it just... <sighs> Remember, and then like every like uh, arts critic got in on it. Like Emily Ooh. Nussbaum of the New Yorker decided to like jump in and be like, "This is a um, this is an opinion that people love to say," and then leftists love to mock it. And it's like, yes, because there's no correlation between anything you're saying. You're simply trying to argue that Harry Potter is like the cause of social movements. Remember which is when Harry Potter had that whole like subplot about Hermione wanting to like be an activist for the house elves but then it turns out that no the house elves don't actually want to go anywhere because they love being slaves yeah yeah the J.K. Rowling is, good, is so into take. activism um I just if you're gonna make Harry Potter political we get to talk about the politics of Harry Potter I hope that people who make that point understand that like we get to pick it apart in the manner that you you hate and that's the thing that that's what they that's what everybody hates right is as soon as you say, well, wait a second, what about the politics of this book you're saying is like the foundational myth of these people's young lives. Like if we point out all the things wrong with it, then suddenly we're like the assholes too that way. You know, I mean, no, yes, but like in no, addition, we have things to say. There's no yeah. there's no winning, you know, like there's no arguing with these people. Um, but I don't know. I guess like we've talked about it before on this show and my only real take of substance on it is like, I think some attention should probably be paid to who, which like kids social movements get called Harry Potter inspired and who gets called like dangerous or unruly or all these other things. Like this is not the first time teenagers have decided to be socially active in the face of violence. You know what I mean? But this is the one where we've decided that these are the kids fighting fascism and these are the kids who are inspired by the book where we overthrow the big evil, you know, overlords and, um, I just think that I think we've got to dig a little deeper than that. And more importantly than that, I think we've just got to understand that, um, you know, there's probably reason enough for these kids to want to mobilize beyond needing, but beyond being inspired by Harry Potter. You know what I mean? It just kind of redu- flattens out the conversation in a million different ways. And, um, but anyway, I actually haven't given that any thought because again, I've never been mad. Um, <laughs> I didn't stand in my bathtub with my pants rolled up, um, w- washing out a tub and sending tweets on Sunday. I didn't do that. Um, never happened. No, it never happened. Um, it was good. Um, but yeah, I suppose, you know, this is quite the preamble. Perhaps we should actually say welcome <laughs> to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. Great to be with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start adding that in, I think. Oh, by that's the way. lovely. Great, yes. great to be with you. Three greats. Um, with 
<laughs> We're going to workshop it. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. Wow. Is that too wow, much? you're just... We're going to have to rehearse that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we've got, I mean, you know, today I think we're mostly just chatting. You know, we've got a couple things we want to get to. We have a story. A it's good story. story time today. Um, and, but more than anything, um, I think we're just kind of hanging out today. So, uh, before we get to any of that, how about the basics? Then we'll get going. Yeah. So, if you are a Patreon supporter, remember to tune in this week for Writing by Reading, where um, we're going to be talking about Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan, who is... Um, In need of protection at all costs from the horrible I was going to say, box. like, Eric's wife or, like, mom or... Yeah. Like, some, some yeah. like, woman in your life yeah. that you love yeah. unconditionally. You know what I mean? I mean, there are probably conditions, but, you know... Fair. Yeah, I mean, it, are there fair. any conditions after visit from the Goon Squad? Yeah, I don't know. Probably not that many conditions. Yeah, that's but, what I thought. You know. Anyway, we're going to be talking about that. If you don't yet have access, if you're not yet a patron, definitely sign up. It'll be a good talk. Um, second of all, uh, we need to be on the lists, as Eric mentioned, because otherwise he just won't stop talking about it. So if you could, I know we've got a lot of new listeners recently. If you could, please go on to iTunes or SoundCloud or anywhere else where you listen to us and leave us a review or just star us. But mostly leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. Yeah, we always want to hear from you, and we do take those reviews seriously, um, and we take any kind of feedback seriously. So also email us, printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, we want to hear from you, um, and maybe someday, like I said, I keep asking for some like really tech-savvy teen to like teach me how to get on the podcast list, but um, we'll see. Maybe we need to be better with our keywords. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, last thing, we will have, towards the beginning of next month, our super special episode as kind of a reward and a thank you to all of you uh, for helping us reach 100 patrons on Patreon. So if you have any ideas, send them to us. Otherwise, you're just going to have to strap in because we're going to go hog wild. Yeah. Well, so I want to start today with an article that came out from The Guardian about this thing that I really it really kind of caught my eye and it ties into some of our past conversations about things like censorship and um, ideas getting kind of cast aside or what goes into banned books and all that kind of stuff. And um, this, so this is from, this is from The Guardian, uh, came out last week, and it, it's talking about a situation that happened over in Madrid. Um, and I would introduce the topic to you myself, but the lead on this story is kind of, it's very funny, and I'm happy that the author wrote it this way, so I want to read that to you real quick. Don Quixote famously tilted at windmills. Now, the Booksellers Guild of Madrid is using Cervantes' 400-year-old novel to take a tilt at the Spanish court system, highlighting 80,000 words in Don Quixote to make the text of a recently banned book about drug smuggling available to readers online. So, um, well, one, first of all, the artistic liberty of using your um, Don Quixote metaphor in your article about Don Quixote is charming to me. It and is I'm glad, charming. And I want more of that in my um, book reporting. Um, but so basically what we have here is there's this book. It got banned um, by a court. It's kind of this big giant expose about some drug trafficking in the country. And in order to circumvent that, I don't know if it came through in what I just read, but they basically made this website, right? And it has the entire text of Don Quixote in Spanish. 
uh, which is, you know, a public domain book, a book that is certainly allowed um, by everyone. You know, no one's banning Don Quixote, I don't think. Um, but they set up this program that moves from word to word in a pattern that reconstructs this other book that's been banned. And the premise is such that, um, well, you can't, you know, just we can't, they don't have any ability to ban your reading habits. And so if we just rearrange the words of Don Quixote or guide you through the book in a certain way, it's not, we're not actually publishing this book. We're simply making you read Don Quixote but just out of, of order by like <laughs> scrambling the words in the manner that makes our book. And like, you know, they kind of address the idea here where like, yeah, a lot of the, there are a lot of words, you know, in this new book that aren't in Don Quixote. So the way they did that is they moved you by syllable through the book. And it's just wild to me. That this, I went on the site, it works great. Like, you go and you click, and it like bounces around the text and it recreates basically this like scrambled up, um, this scrambled up page that makes a new book out of an old one. And it's like, it's amazing to me, one, that someone thought to do this. I think it's genius. But it's also interesting that, um, it does get at the, that idea of censorship. Like, what can you ban and how, like, in terms of reader behavior? Because you really can't, even though they're basically giving you the same words. And it also, it, like, gets at the nature to me of, like, what is, like, I don't want to, like, sound like I'm, like, high or something. Be like, what is writing? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's, it's so strange. Because you're not, they're not actually technically writing this book. They're simply making you read the letters of a different book in a certain order. And... Yeah, I don't know. I just found it fascinating, you know? It it I mean, the technology is phenomenal. Like something no, great, like yeah. this wouldn't have happened. Um and this is kind of in response to I think that technology has gone farther than the laws in Madrid, yeah. Yeah. right? Um but one thing I think of is so the guild has been talking about why they're doing this, right? And that this is their way of defending freedom of the press and freedom of expression. Um and then they say something really interesting. Interesting. Um, they said, because what they will never be able to censure are your rights as a reader. Yeah. Which is so interesting. You know, the rhetoric around banned books in the United States have to do with, like, people reading them. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's this whole thing now about, you know, giving kids books that are banned you know, and having them read them. Yeah. And that's such a big focus. Mm -hmm. um, but what you realize is like censorship is actually actually has to do with books being sold. The idea that there are these books that are untouchable, right? Like yeah. Don Quixote is right. untouchable. Yeah. That this is like a big part of Spanish tradition. Yeah. And so then they're just kind of giving up. Um is is just endlessly fascinating to well, me. Well, it's just like it's not even it's not even the Don Quixote thing almost. It's just the though it is funny that they picked that book and I wonder if there's like some Oh, I'm sure. choice there, you know, because you could theoretically do this with any book. Um as long as you had very long Yeah, books. you just yeah. take a book and say read the words in a different order. Like that's just to, that's to me is really is really something and now that it's easy to kind of re-scramble them, I do think that you're going to have like this will probably get examined by courts you know more and like people are gonna figure this out and um it'll be interesting to see where it goes i mean i guess the big eye opener for me is i as an american thought that censorship meant that every time a publisher doesn't publish the right-wing goon i like best 
um, that's censorship. But clearly, <laughs> um, clearly that's um, clearly I was mistaken about that. Um, Funny how that works. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean it's it's crazy to me because I'm just trying to think about any kind of like American analog, like if there's any, um, and I'm sure like maybe listeners if they can if they know of one they can send me. And the only thing I can think of, and it's nothing like this, but like Jonathan Safran Foer had that one book where he took Street of Crocodiles and, like, chopped all the, some of the words out, mm. right, and made his own book just simply by, like, his whole writing process was just, like, removing words from this book that already existed, you know, to make, like, new sentences and stuff. It was, I think it was called Tree of Codes because it's, like... Um, oh, so he but, could only use the words that yeah, were in he the just other took, book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He took the book and, like, in the, cop, the physical copies of the book are beautiful because they actually are, it's, like chopped pages they look like swiss cheese right hmm. um it's like the removed text and that's how we I did bet it. that printer had a fabulous time printing <laughs> that even, book i can't even imagine um that would be one of the worst production meetings i've ever been in, in my life but <laughs> um no i mean it um but that's the only thing in terms of like repurposing a text and making making something different but like here yeah i don't know it seems like this is the sort of thing that's going to catch people's eye but i thought it was kind of cool and just an excellent excellent like middle finger yeah to yeah. yeah to to the that court finding i love that but i let's see how long this lasts rights as a reader yeah. though is interesting like you can't govern reader behavior you can yeah. only govern books and i bet that yeah someone's gonna i wish yeah i don't know it feels like someone's gonna crack down on this but um maybe not maybe not we'll i mean you can't tell you know, a Spanish booksellers association that like Don Quixote's off limits. Sorry, dude. Like, I don't but know about that. But can you tell them, can you tell them about what order the words have to go in? Can you tell them about how to read it? Like right now? No, you can't. That sounds absurd. But I don't know. Maybe down the line. We'll see. Interesting. Um, maybe that, maybe that's, uh, that's an important part that the copyright's expired. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway. Um, so the big thing today that we were bringing to the table was a story from my youth. Turns out Eric's had an agent <laughs> and was once young. Um, well, I don't know which of those is more shocking um, <laughs> people. But no, I, I actually, I don't even think I did have an agent is where we're going to get with this story. But um, we thought that we would we would dredge this story up from my youth. Um, so I'm in college, right, is where this tale begins. And I'm writing um, with a friend. We're writing a TV show. Right, because we were both kind of into it. We'd been obviously we had both been watching a lot of television. No, um, and we were just like, you know what? Let's let's write a script, man. Let's do it. So we like got together and we wrote this pilot for this television. What kind show. of TV show? It was, was a sitcom. It? it was a twenty-two minute sitcom. It was a sitcom. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was like it was okay. going to be funny, and it was this. Um, <laughs> it, talking about the show is is absurd, but like the basic premise I'm was so ready was this, for this man was this very sad middle-aged man came into possession of an octopus. <laughs> like a 20-year-old boy wrote this. Okay, yeah, it, great. Well, yeah. No, I mean, I was probably like, you know, 21. Oh, at the sure. <laughs> very, very mature. Um, but so, yeah. No, this guy, um, this guy comes into, his name was Hugh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes into possession of this octopus and he can't give it away. Um, because the zoo won't take it because the zoo's already got an octopus. You know, we had all these like catches built in for why he wasn't allowed to get rid of it, right? Wasn't allowed to dump it in the river, wasn't allowed to do any of this stuff. Um, so we had to keep it and put it in this big tank in the middle of his house. And, you know, 
It was, it made his apartment ugly. It made him have to come home from dates early. You know, all the hijinks. Because he had to come take right, care right, right. of his all octopus. All the hijinks ensued because he had to come take care of Roy the octopus. The, wait, okay. Yeah, the octopus's his, name was Roy? The octopus's name was Roy. Did, did Hugh name Roy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so was was Roy like smart? Yeah. No. 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 Roy was dumb because the octopus, the like his the foil, the foil octopus. This was a very expensive show to make. I'm realizing. So there's a second octopus. Yeah. Um, So the second octopus was the one at the zoo, right? And that was the one that could like open the jars and shit. Yeah. Um, But not Roy. Roy was dumb, and that was like part of Roy's charm. Why Um, couldn't this man eat Roy? Because he's a, he has empathy. Oh, because sure. he's a nice man. But he doesn't would never love eat his pet. octopus. Well, he loves his pet now. But like, and that's but like, like for food, he doesn't love octopus. Well, like, do you eating? like to eat your cat? I don't know. <laughs> it's the same thing. But anyway, I don't. So, I anyway, do not enjoy that. Anyway, anyway, anyway. The plot of this show is actually irrelevant to the story. Wait, most okay. Of the time. I have one more question um, about the plot, though. <laughs> So each, like a sitcom is a very like yeah. trope driven format, right? right? right okay, yeah. so like what would happen in each each episode? Well, they, he, the point of the show was him trying to get rid of it, right? Uh-huh. In a humane way. Uh-huh. Like, because he liked the octopus, but, you know, it was ruining his life to uh-huh. have this giant sea creature in his living room. Okay. And so like he, he would have to like, you know, I don't know, it was all about like dealing with the EPA and things like He falls in love with the EPA lady. You know, it was very, to me, as like a 21 year old, like basically incapable of, of empathy at the time. The like, height of romance. Like, <laughs> it was the most loving thing I could possibly think of. Um, but so anyway, at the time that summer, this was during college, I actually interned at a literary agency, which I I forgot about until recently because it was so small time and it was so long ago that it was, it was in Colorado where there's, like, nothing, right? Like, this was not a um, publishing scene I was a part of. But I went and interned at this at this literary agency. And you lived this whole life, and you, neither I know, of no, us I know. knew. I, I totally forgot about this story, and it gets, it gets <laughs> kind of weird. Um, so I'm working at this agency as, a, as an unpaid intern in Colorado, like, 10 minutes from, you know, my parents' house where I was home for the summer from college, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's... One of those things where I show up and file papers and do all that kind of stuff, um, you know, all the little intern things you do, especially. And so at this point, I had no frame of reference for how anything in publishing worked at all. And in retrospect, like I realized I don't even know what they were because it didn't really feel like an agency. Like when I think of any of the things they were doing, like none of it was like I couldn't tell you what these people's actual business was at this point. But um, it sure seemed like a literary agency at the time to me who had absolutely no idea what anything was, including um, any aspect of the publishing process. But so I'm working for for these people, and there's two of them, right? And I'm, like, filing papers, and eventually I developed this scheme, right, where I'm like, look, I'm going to do all this work for free all summer. And at the end of the summer, I'm going to go in to the, my boss at the time. I'm going to go in and say, look, I want you to let me pitch our show to you. Mm. And I want you to just listen to the pitch, and maybe you'll like it. Maybe you want to represent us as writers. This is my this is my big plan. Did they I, do TV shows? Yeah, one of them was there were two of them. One of them did TV stuff, right? Okay, great. This is all well in my you know this is what I've been told. This is in your head, yeah. Yeah, but I had been told that you know so this guy was a guy who represented some TV writers, things like that, and um, so we get to the end of summer, 
and meanwhile, we're like polishing the script up, right? We're getting it all ready. We've You're got, covered in paper cuts yeah, exactly. from all the filing. Yeah, we like yeah. are Googling. We're doing the thing in TV writing, you know, where you have to have like the correct kind of chad, you know, like to staple the script together. You've got to have like the right kind of like brass thing in the middle. Um, uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about? No, but I... Uh, well, there's no. rule, There's very serious rules. Um, okay. Or at least there were. I have no idea now. I'm not a TV agent. I don't work with TVers. I don't know anything. But you had to like... <laughs> wait, first of all, you had to print it out? Well, yeah. Because if you him, send something yeah, yeah, printed yeah. out to an a, like a literary send, agent... Right, right, but I didn't send it to him. I walked it into his office. Remember, this yeah. was my big power move. As, an, as a <laughs> yes. 21-year-old unpaid Your power intern. Move. I was making a power move, right? I was moving and shaking. With my, you know, co-writer. Yep. And so we get to the end of summer and I say, all right, look, I've been sitting here filing your crap for, I sounded way meeker than this, I'm assuming, (laughs) in conversation. Um, But I was like, can we just talk to you about our show? Will you listen to our pitch? And he was like, of course, sure. And so we get ready for like weeks. We're like practicing, we're rehearsing, we're doing all this stuff, right? I'm getting ready to talk about Roy the Octopus in a, like a professional setting, which in like, now, like in retrospect, I'm like mortified. I mean, about. we talk about a lot um, of weird stuff. I mean, here we are right yeah. now talking about Roy the Octopus I'm in, in a professional, professional setting. <laughs> God, um, but so we come in and we pitch. And, you know, he's engaged, right? And Tell me you had a script and, like, each of you, like, volleyed the, oh, the it was pitch a, back to one have, another. We didn't, like, have a script in our hands, but it was like that. Yeah. We definitely did, like, a... Um, it was like a song and dance kind of thing. Oh, yeah, we thing. had, like, a whole routine. I mean, we were in college. It was luckily, lucky we didn't make, like, a poster board or some shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, so, we... Uh, we do this thing. And he he takes a look. And then, like... Two weeks go by, internship's about to wrap up, and he calls me and he says, yeah, no, I really like the show. I think we should do it. And, of course, at this moment, I am, I'm ecstatic, right? Right. Because I've just been told by this by this man that he's going to be my television agent. Clearly now, I he's have, important. He has so, so many papers. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, now, here's the thing with this, is that I have no idea how, to this day, I don't really know how, like... TV scripts are sold or things like that. That's not something I, I work with. Like uh-huh. and so, my and especially not then. But like my frame of reference was so out, and so we said, all right, well we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna talk to some people about it. We're gonna do this kind of thing. And so then I became the most insufferable 21 year old you've ever met. Because now I'm like I'm like hotshot TV writer guy, right? <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> so like the rest of summer I'm just like doing whatever I want and like telling my mom that it, you know she can like talk to my agent and stuff like that. Like instead of <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was, you know, it was like really like, man, we made it. You know, I was like, we were, we had this whole thing where we had thought we had like shot the moon in one summer, and eventually, the guy just never called back. We just never heard from him ever again. Did, and I couldn't find him online. Did you have conversations? I couldn't find. <laughs> but did you have conversations between him when he's like, "Let's do it," and like he when he ghosted him. you? He, he no, he quit. Well, I mean, if we did a couple times. And then eventually the ghost happened. Ooh. Yeah. So to this day, maybe I still have a TV agent. I have no idea. Did uh, you sign anything? <laughs> no, we didn't sign anything. That's okay. The no, then you I don't know. have an agent. I know. No, I know. I think I know. he was just being nice and he right. was awkward. Right. But like that was the thing. And that's what's so absurd about it is like at the time it felt like having no <laughs> no frame of reference at all like and just being like. Literally, like, the dumbest person you've ever met in your life. Like, that's a good way to, like, describe who I was at, like, age 21. Um, it, yeah, 
you would think that we would have been able to figure out like maybe you should sign something eric like maybe yeah. this is like you should like have some sort of basic documentation for what's happening maybe here. we should check so then, that this isn't just like a so, money laundering firm <laughs> which it might have been that's the thing you that, can't find them online that's, that's the mystery no i can't find anywhere i have no idea what i did that summer now i have no idea if these people were maybe i dreamt this <laughs> who knows if any of this is real <laughs> But like, yeah, no, I like spent this summer interning, quote unquote, at a literary agency, quote unquote. And I have no idea what they did. I have no idea what I did. I, it's very strange. And at the end of it, I thought that this TV thing was popping. I was like, I don't need a career plan. I don't need like, you know, I was like refusing to like update my resume for like job fairs and shit. Cause I was like, I'm going to be a TV guy. Um, it was, it was wild. It was a wild time in so, my young, stupid life. So when the uh, ghosting happened, <laughs> yeah, talk to me yeah. about like, I mean, obviously young, dumb, enthusiastic, et cetera. Right. But like, what did it feel like when you realized, or like, when did you realize? And then what did it feel like when you realized you just like, weren't going to be a TV writer? <sighs> I was like, well, I guess it's back to this stupid old book world. <laughs> no, no um i don't know you just go you just move on but like i kept being worried like this is so then my brain switched into not that this person had just like ghosted us like which is what happened clearly i was like mm, he stole our idea he stole our million dollar kick-ass show idea <laughs> and he's gonna run with it and someday i'm gonna turn on like you know, NBC. Showtime yeah. or what? Because we were we were imagining ourselves as like prestige TV people, right? Oh, like we were great! Gonna, <laughs> yeah, for an like octopus we were, yeah, sitcom. Yeah, yeah. yeah, an octocom. Or um, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, no, we were imagining we were gonna be like on one of those like nice channels, you know? Like mm, we were not like the one with the boobs. Yeah, the ones with the boobs, right? Uh, we were not gonna be like cable fodder. Come on, we were much too sophisticated for that. Um, but. Yeah. No, I mean, so we were worried that we were going to, like, turn one of those on one day, and then, like, there would be our show. That, you and... know, that's a really common fear. I know. Amongst, yeah. and, like, so, to I've heard be people, clear. I've heard people have that fear. To be clear, too, yeah. um, there are a lot of writers mm-hmm. who steal things from other writers. So you need to be very careful yeah. about, like, who does your yeah. beta reading, who's your critique partner, etc. Um, but... It's really interesting that once you get to, to kind of like when you get into the groove of publishing and yeah. you're talking to agents and editors, et cetera, like if you ask somebody to like sign an NDA or like yeah. you put copyright, blah, 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 or like you already register your draft with the United yeah. States Copyright Office, yeah. like you are seen as just like a total noob and a pain in the ass. Yeah. You come off as paranoid. Well, yeah. You come you and... come off as paranoid. And that that is always something to me that like that feels like I, I feel very like eye rolly mm-hmm. whenever anybody's like, I've already copyrighted this or it's got like copyright <laughs> yeah, author right. name and right, like right, right. in, you know, in yeah. watermark behind the manuscript. But like on the other hand, on the other hand, people are just left and right stealing my brilliant octopus show. <laughs> so. <laughs> Keep but, your mitts off my million dollar ideas. So why okay, so why do you think that <laughs> all of besides the octopus thing, uh-huh. uh, why do you think that people in publishing, like uh-huh. professionals in publishing, right. have like disdain for people wanting to protect their work? Um that's a good question. 
I mean, I think that largely it probably has to do with just that idea of, and this is a stupid idea, but I think this is why. Um, you don't want to, if I get a manuscript that's like already copyrighted and stuff, it's almost like the, the assumption is that this person thinks I would otherwise try to steal it. You know, mm. like it feels aggressive to copyright something ahead of time. It feels like you're saying, I don't trust you to handle this in a professional manner, which it should, that shouldn't necessarily be the case, right? Like someone, it should be just, a, I, like, I guess as we speak about it, like it doesn't seem like that strange of a thing. Yeah. But it is. It's not a convention and it's not normal. And I don't know. It might be also that there, the author kind of gives you an idea that like it's done. Right. Right. And yeah, like you always want. A, yeah. Yeah. You always want somebody yeah. to come to yeah. you and be like, let's change whatever we need to. Like you're here to like you're here to help me make it better. Right. 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 And to be clear, when we say like you shouldn't get it copyrighted yet, that's just shorthand for us saying you shouldn't register it with the Copyright Office of the United States. Yeah. Because United States copyright law says that anytime you put something in a preservable format, a recorded format, so we're copywriting ourselves right now. Anytime you like when you're writing something down, it's already copywritten. Um, Copyrighted? Copyrighted. Yeah, I think so. Definitely copyrighted. Yeah, Yeah, so that already happens, right? Um, So your book is, is already. Yeah. Already has a copyright. Yeah. And yeah. like if you have files on your computer that are like date and time stamped, like in the code of that, which all word files are, mm-hmm. um, you should be fine. So that's kind of another thing for me where it's like you already are. So, Eric, mm-hmm. has this experience um, made you a little bit more empathetic, I guess you could say, for the expectations of of writers who want to work with you (laughs) i mean i think so right because i mean when i was doing that i didn't know anything right like i was the dumbest person that's ever existed in the publishing world like that was me (laughs) and we were all that person but yes (laughs) and i guess like it just it does it does make me think a little bit about how um I think that people on our end do need to have a little bit more like empathy and understanding for the fact that people just come in with incredibly wide ranging degrees of, of knowledge on how any of this stuff works um, and where they're, you know, what sort of exposure they've had to the industry or anything like that. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I would say that I, maybe it has me cutting people more slack. You're nicer than me. That's for sure. Well, I'm definitely nicer than you. (laughs) Um, people think that people still think that I'm the mean one, I think, which is really show. funny because yeah. I'm just a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, but you have, you have, you have been teaching me and uh-huh. in the two years of our acquaintance, you have uh-huh. been teaching me about, um, having a, yeah, I think that slack and that empathy is really important because one thing, you know, it's really easy as an agent to talk with other agents and talk about the crazy submissions you're getting yeah. or the crazy whatever yeah. and just being like, God damn it, why aren't these people following the rules? You know, why yeah. aren't these people right. doing what's so easy? All right. of the information is available online. Right. It's there. You can't possibly get this wrong. Yeah, that's another thing. You would think I would have like done a little bit of Googling. Yeah. <laughs> but so here's but so here's the thing or I like, think with that. To anyone 
or done anything other <laughs> than what I did, which was like sit around in my pajamas and write an octopus show and then go to a fake job and pitch a fake show. Like, so here's the thing with that, though. You like a yeah. lot of people, you know, if, if you're living your life and you have a successful, you know, place in a professional business, mm-hmm. you might think. Well, publishing is just like that. I'm just going to be normal and professional and not think that you need to Google something or not think that you need to do the research because like, why would there need to be research to tell somebody about what, how, like the exact way to tell somebody about your project. Right. Right. And so that, that's always a thing, you know, like we, we require so little, but yet so much. I also think that. As agents, you know, we're, we're guilty of this, but we criticize it all the time as well uh, because we contain multitudes, um, is that the the getting an agent stage of the process is the one thing that is focused on so, so, so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some, there's, you know, there's the cottage industries about the how to write your book and how to do this, but so yeah. much is just focused on getting an agent and writing the query letter and doing yep. all that biz. Yep. Um, and that's, of course, because you need an agent first. Like it's the first step, right? It's yep. the easiest. It's very, like it's very prescribed. You can just do it. But... Also, you know, when you have when you're in a position where you can kind of skip the rope a little bit like you did, even though you kind of imaginarily skipped the rope. rope. I I thought that I had skipped the line. But some people do. You know, some people will self-publish and then like sell really well and then get an agent. Right. Or, you know, some people will just like make friends with an agent and then the agent will like your book and then that'll happen. But like that skipping the line does happen. And I think the first kind of problem with writer expectation is that first they think that they get to skip the line because of course they're like so great you're the they one totally who, you're the one who's beat the system yeah. you're the one I who's was beat the, one the system who would beat the system i was the one who didn't have to like put on a stupid tie and go job hunting <laughs> <laughs> but but also yeah. there's not a lot of thinking beyond you know getting that call Right. Mm -hmm. I ask authors in the call every day and I was like, okay, like close your eyes and thinking, think about your publishing career. Yeah. Right. Like think about it. Talk to me about what it looks like, like what specific activities or markers will make you think that you have had a successful career. Yeah. Does it is it seeing your book in hardcover on a shelf? Is it being a bestseller? Is it making a living off of this and just this? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, like just having a very steady, cushy, you know, publishing backlist? Yeah. Is it, you know, is it doing events? Is it getting invited to cons? Is it traveling? Is it going on book tour? Like, like, you know, there are all of these different options and you know, you really have to think about what exactly you want, and then you can kind of work backwards. The point a is to bit. have like a little bit of vision. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I think so too. Because you can't like it's nice to have hopes. Yeah, but I had a I lot of hopes. I had a lot of hopes. You have Laura. a lot of hopes, but you and didn't, now look at me. I'm like this didn't... hopeless little boy. <laughs> <laughs> the lost boy. Yeah, like Peter Pan. Um, exactly. It's a great thing to have hopes that don't that kind of go everywhere. Like you as a 21-year-old Eric mm-hmm. had lots of hopes. Eric, that didn't <laughs> quite go into expectations, right? Like I feel like expectations I, I are reasonable. To, I didn't move to Los Angeles and like pick up smoking and a jacket. Yeah. That would have <laughs> been like yeah. and like eat salads every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. I was going to eat a lot of salads. I was going to smoke a lot of cigarettes. 
Ooh. It was really gonna be. It was really gonna be a look. I cannot picture you smoking a cigarette. Well, yeah, because I. You can't picture me as a super cool badass TV writer. Yeah, zero of um, those things are you. <laughs> um, so, um, on that note, one we used to write. We used to write at a Starbucks, right? Because I was like, I lived in Littleton, Colorado, where there's like no cool anything. We have like Starbucks, and we used to go every night. And right at one of the tables there. And one time I walked in, Ooh, I got, I got nighttime there. nighttime Starbucks. Yeah. One time I got there before my friend, who I was riding the show with, got there. And I set up and got the table and everything. And we had been there. We go, we were there like every night, right? So like the baristas knew who we were and all that kind of stuff. And I heard, I walked in one time and it was the same, it was the same two girls as it had been, you know, the last few nights. And one of them leans over to the other and goes, oh, He's here. Do you think the hot one is coming too? <sighs> you weren't the hot one. Nope. Oh, I was not the hot one. Oh, My friend no. was the hot one. Yeah. Did you know so, that he was the hot one or was this a surprise? I mean, I think we, uh, you know. You knew. We knew. You know who the hot one is, Laura. Um, and it wasn't me. And but I that, am but that so only fueled, sorry. That only fueled. That only fueled my creative process. I was like, I'll show them who the hot one is. <laughs> When I write this kick-ass it's octopus, it's Roy the octopus. <laughs> exactly. Did you? Um, so that. <laughs> did you just like give them the look and just be like, "Give me this coffee"? No, for free? I like didn't make any. I I'm not. I wasn't nearly that cool. The I like cower. One, I like. Oh. Yeah, it was that, really bad. That I I would like to apologize to you on behalf of see, all like in a, retail see, and like in a different food service world, workers in a different, everywhere. In a different world, I would have told that anecdote to like GQ magazine when they profiled me about like my kick-ass television show. I'm not the hot uh, one, but now I'm the rich one. Exactly. <laughs> I'd be like in one of those like chairs, like overlooking. You know, I was gonna have this whole other life, uh, but now well, I'm stuck here doing a me, damn podcast with me, who is the hot one? God damn it! I'll never be the hot one. Always the Joker, never yeah. the hot one. Oh, I don't. Man. I hope. Yeah. I just. I just declared myself the hot one. That's just. And that's gonna fine. Stay. I've settled into this role. I know what my lot is in life. We're all. We're all tied to certain things. You're you know? the loon. I'm the hot yeah, one. That's just fine. how it is. That's fine. You're the um, nice. You're the nice one. I'm the mean hot one. That's yeah, great. but people also think I'm not the nice one. No one thinks I'm the anything. <laughs> This has become far too emotional. I anyway, can't do okay, I can't do this so show I am moving on. Yeah. I feel like we have done enough digging into Eric's uh, past traumas as a teenager um, and <sighs> yeah. a young adult, yeah. and I feel like that is enough nerve poking for one day. So I'm going to bring us to the right tip. We're doing a right tip this week, not a pub tip. The right tip is to sign a piece of paper with the person you think is that, your No, agent. that's the pub tip. The pub <laughs> tip is to sign the piece of paper, make sure that yeah. you Google the person who says they'll work with you, yeah. and maybe considering not writing about a gigantic octopus named Roy. The right tip, on the other hand, is something that um, in the recording of this episode, I have been guilty of. Many, many times. Um, and that is this. Do not bury the lead. I am a big fan of giving lots of context, mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm going to tell you the whole story because yeah. I find the whole story super interesting. Yeah. And then, like, the joke or the point or whatever is, like, buried under a mountain of heap. And, mm -hmm. like, you know, there's there's not even an, an octopus can use all of its arms with all of its shovels to <sighs> dig it back out. 
So, in your each, writing... Each of your octopus metaphors hurts me a little bit more. I know. So isn't know. it great? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, what I mean by that is, you know, if you've done any... If, you've, if you know anything about journalism, you know that, you know, you always start in the first line with the lead, right? You want to you wanna tell everyone exactly what the story is about because otherwise they're not going to read those column inches. In writing, a lot of the time, you know, we see this most commonly in first pages, you know, where you're starting on the driving to the bank robbery instead of the actual bank robbery. You know, instead of a girl getting into fight with her best friend, you know, we show her waking up and getting ready to have a conversation. You know, you, you want to get rid of all of those moments that are leading up to things and just tell us what the scene is about, right? Just focus on exactly what this is. And then, you know, and then your reader is going to be a lot happier and you're not going to have a bunch of like useless prose and everyone's going to be happy. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, thank you, Eric, for sharing your deep, dark secrets and yeah. to the rest of you for listening and letting me laugh at them. <laughs> I really appreciate God. it. Uh, remember to tune in this week for, for Writing by Reading, um, which we will also plumb into the depths. If my TV agent is listening to this and wants to like get back in touch, um, feel free. I'm still available. We're still... <laughs> We will see you this Thursday for Writing by Reading. Yeah. Send us your queries and first pages to yeah. us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye. 